welcome to episode 121 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I am your host, Charles Woods. On this episode of TBR Podcast, I chat with Dr. Alexandra Hidalgo as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Keystone Perspectives series. Sort of turn polishing a little bit on its head by instead of doing the whole, we are going to review you and tell you everything that's wrong with your work and uh, really embarrass you because you didn't cite these five other people that we thought you should have cited. We seek to turn the publishing experience into something really positive and nurturing. Um, so we are very careful about who we invite as reviewers, but then we also, we're very careful at writing a a memo that really gives you a sense of our priorities. So we, we do give you what the, uh, reviewer said, but we also were like, okay, listen, the reviewers want the earth and the sky and a thousand other planets, but this is what we actually want, right? Like. If, if you want to publish with us, this is what we want. And then we also have mentors who are people who then sit with you. They will um, look at their reviews. They will look at our memo. And then they will also just help you make sense of it and, and talk to you, like actual talk to you and say, listen, is this what you want? Is this what you don't want? And then we ask our uh, authors to give us an idea, like to reply to us with a memo, like, look, you guys wanted this and I did these three things. I didn't do thing number four. And this is why, you know, to sort of just turn um, this process, which is what many of us depend on for our jobs and for our promotions and for like races, like merit races, right? For getting tenure, if you're, you know, uh, into a generative, positive, less mysterious kind of experience. Before we get to the interview, I am excited to share an update on the 2022-2023 TBR Podcast Fellowship. I am thrilled to announce that our second TBR Podcast Fellow has been selected. Hamza Ahmad is a PhD student at the University of Washington, focusing on rhetorics of race and composition. In their email of interest to the podcast, Hamza explained that they value the way TBR podcast makes scholarship accessible, which of course is one of our original goals of the project. As TBR podcast fellow, Hamza will gain valuable experience working with a leading academic podcast, connecting with scholars in rhetoric, writing studies, and adjacent areas, and working and producing in the field. Congratulations, Hamza Ahmad. We are excited to see what you produce during season eight. And season eight is right around the corner. If you or someone you know would like to be featured on TBR Podcast during Season 8, reach out to us at www.thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com or shoot us an email at thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Dr. Alexandra Hidalgo is an award-winning Venezuelan writer, filmmaker, theorist, memoirist, and editor whose documentaries have been official selections for film festivals in 15 countries and have been screened at universities around the United States. Her videos and writing have been featured in The Hollywood Reporter, IndieWire, NPR, The Criterion Collection, and Women in Hollywood. Dr. Hidalgo has a PhD in English from Purdue University and an MFA in creative writing from 
Naropa University. And she is an associate professor and Crow Chair of English at the University of Pittsburgh. She is co-founder and editor-in-chief of the digital publication Agnes Film Supporting Women and Feminist Filmmakers and of the peer-reviewed journal Constellations, a cultural rhetorics publishing space. I sat down with Dr. Hidalgo recently to talk about her life and her work as a part of the big rhetorical podcast, Keystone Perspectives series. I hope you enjoy the interview. What is your name, your title, your institution, and your role there? Who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Alexandra Hidalgo. I am um, associate professor and Crow chair at the University of Pittsburgh in the English department. And what I, what do I do in the English department? Well, um, I just started here in the fall. Um, so if, if a couple months ago, and mostly I'm just uh, amazed at how fabulous it is and how well run and how delightful the students are and how much I like my colleagues. I, I do a lot of being amazed. How about that? So you're settling into your new role at the University of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. What are things that you're learning early on in your new role about your university, your colleagues, and doing research as the Crow Chair of English? Um, it's interesting. I came, I was uh, very fortunate to have started my career at Michigan State University in the Department of Writing, Rhetoric, and Cultures. They just changed the name to Writing, Rhetoric, and Cultures from Writing, Rhetoric, and American Cultures. Um, and that was, um, it, it, was an, it was a rhetoric department, uh, as the name um, suggests. And um, when I came to Pittsburgh, I suddenly find myself in a department that features composition, literature, film studies and creative writing. And uh, it has been really fun for somebody who is um, who does rhetoric and filmmaking and creative writing to be surrounded by all of these people who um, sort of work in my different interests. Um, and it's just it's it's been really enriching to sort of um, everywhere I go sort of be uh, find somebody who shares one of my interests and um as somebody who's never only or not only but let me start over with that um as somebody who from the very beginning when i started rhetoric and composition um i the, the very semester that i started rhetoric and composition i also started working as a filmmaking and i came from creative writing originally I've always um, brought a variety of um, interests to rhetoric and composition and um, to finally be in a department where all those interests are represented is just fantastic. It feels great. I, I get very excited when I talk to my colleagues. Rhetoric, filmmaking, creative writing. We'll try to cover all of this in this interview. Let's... <laughs> Let's start with a big question. Uh, really, what do you think draws you to documentary filmmaking, to this type of composing and research? I guess the question is, why documentary filmmaking? So I started in fiction. My I always, since I was like three, I wanted to be a writer. I come from a long line of writers. My grandmother was a writer. My father was a writer. Not He wasn't. And I'm sorry, father, a very good writer. Uh, she was a very successful writer, uh, but it it meant a lot to my great grandmother wrote. She didn't publish. But so like I always wanted to do fiction. Um, and then when I got to Purdue, which is where I got my Ph.D., I couldn't figure out 
with my at that point fairly limited understanding of of rhetoric because it was my first semester of my PhD how to fit fiction into um rhetoric I was like I don't know how to do this it it, it I, I can't I can't put the two together um so I then thought well I also love film I am I've been a passionate uh cinephile my whole life like for a while there I was watching two movies a night you know like so I've seen every movie and I've loved them and it's a big part of my relationship with my husband we watch all sorts of movies um and I thought okay maybe I can make movies and do rhetoric because I knew that as an artist I wasn't going to be satisfied with the academic piece alone I liked and I still like, and I love the academic piece, but I'm an artist at heart. So then I thought, okay, let me make films, but I also couldn't figure out how to take fiction films and make them fit with rhetoric. And then I thought, oh, wait, documentary filmmaking and rhetoric, somehow I they made sense to me um, as, a, as a combination that could be explored. Um, so it was really... It, the choice was basically how do I make it through this program and forge a career for myself in rhetoric without abandoning uh, the artist side of me. And uh, it turned out to have been a very fortuitous uh, choice because um, I'm somebody who really loves other people and, and, and listening to other people and sort of understanding others and documentary is based on that right you like interview people and you try to take everything that they've given you around a theme or a story and craft a narrative out of it hopefully a satisfying one um so that is how I landed with documentary I talked to a lot of folks on the podcast um, who have a similar experience. They're creatives. They come to rhetoric and composition, whether it's through their PhD program or in the classroom, oftentimes teaching those first year comp classes and things like that. It's difficult to navigate, right? Your creative life and then your rhetoric composition or academic life. We're going to talk a little bit more about balancing that later, but I want to ask a question about making decisions like as a graduate student, right? Because this is important. How did you navigate this as a graduate student and make the decisions that led you ultimately to filmmaking? So this is where I'm going to get a little mystical, but so I'm I'm pretty mystical and I always have been. Um, I have been a, a yoga teacher, like a certified yoga teacher since 2000 and one or 2002 I, th I started in 2001 it was a nine-month process um and I got my uh sort of uh, certification certificate in 2002 I got my certificate in 2002 and uh I have meditated and done yoga every day since then I've never missed a day like I didn't even miss a day when I had a c-section like I just have not missed a day so I that practice um, and I'm 45 years old. Um, and I started, I think, when I was 23. So mo for mo almost half my life, I've been meditating every day of uh, every morning. Um, so I, I just make decisions very intuitively. I don't like, I don't, I <laughs> at some point the decision is there and I make it and I never look back. So I guess my answer to that, which may or, you know, it's not a very useful answer to people who don't want to spend 20 years meditating every morning, but um, it is to say, listen, find a way that you, to listen to yourself, whatever that is, um, and then stick by it. And then if it's not the right decision, you will know, by the way, you know, we all know when we've made a decision that isn't so hot and it's okay to, you know, turn back <laughs> and make a different decision. Um, but with me, it was, it was very, I, Shirley Rose was a professor at, at Purdue at the time. And I went to talk to her and I don't know, somehow after I left that meeting, oh, because she said something like, 
uh, you know, rhetoric isn't just uh, a field where we analyze things. It's a thing, it's a field where we make things. So if you're interested in film, you might consider making films. And I went, okay, so I'll make films. Sure. Um, so that's sort of how I made it, but it's not, it, I don't want to give, it, it's been a long practice to learn to make. And I tried, always try to get my graduate students um, and my undergrads to think in these ways, like what are the healthy practices that they can engage in that make them happier? I don't only meditate and do yoga because it makes uh, me make decisions fast. It also makes me extremely happy. <laughs> so like I always try to get um, my fellow academics and my students to think about what that looks like for them so that then when they make a decision or when they work on a project, um, it can be um, enjoyable, easy experience. So much of your interest and the reason that you see value in documentary filmmaking, as you've explained in your scholarship, is that we, the audience, can see things. We can hear things, right? Like on a podcast, we can hear things. What connections do you see between documentary filmmaking and rhetoric and composition and podcasting in rhetoric and composition, particularly in relation to the use of sound? I think, um, well, okay, you want me to talk about sound, but I'm going to talk about something else for a second. Um, I, the thing that it's, this is my newest soapbox that I'm on and I've been on it for, for a couple of years. Um, I don't know that anybody's listening, but they're listening now. Um, for me, um, one of the things that I would like us to do in rhetoric and composition is to really think about our work as being educational, but also gripping in some way, right? To sort of um, present our ideas in a way that once people have started to listen or to read or to watch, they don't want to stop because we have them gripped. I feel like often, and this is not just rhetoric and composition, I think often in academia, we, we tend to think of our work as something that's going to be, either be assigned, like, and you, the students have to read it, <laughs> or that we have to read because we're going to cite it, you know. Um, so we take for granted the fact that the audience is going to stick around because they have to, because it's been, it's like, you got to read from page this to page that. And uh, podcasts like documentary live in a slightly different world that it's it's part of the entertainment industry, right? So for me, one of the great uh, connections between the two is that due to that um, part of the entertainment industry link that they both have, we're trying to keep you here, dear listeners, uh, with more than just knowledge, right? I'm, I, you know, we're, we're trying to either be funny or charming or touch your heart or um, give you some sort of a story. This is harder to do in, in a podcast like this, but like, here's a question that will be answered towards the end. And here's the path that we're going to take. There's a million ways in which documentary filmmaking, which is basically part of filmmaking, um, keeps the audiences um, tied to that seat and, 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 and paying attention. And um, it, I believe that it would be a great thing for us as a field to continue to um, do these kind of things like documentary filmmaking, like podcast that require us to um, not take the audience's stay for granted, but rather sort of invite them to stick around. You want me to talk about sound too, or is that enough? I can I can talk about sound if you want. So so much of what you were just saying resonates so much with me, like as a scholar who was making decisions uh, for my dissertation, but also as someone who does podcasts. Um, so I want to have a follow-up question, and if we circle back to sound, we do. If not, that's okay. Um, 
this idea of gripping um, is is really something I've thought a lot about. Um, I keep I, the first word that came to my mind, for better or worse, and I'm not up on the rhetoric of this, is spectacle, um, perhaps. So the, uh, the, that's one part. But the other part is that by making gripping scholarship, I think that we can achieve a goal of our field, and that is to bridge the gap between academic and public discourse, right? Mm -hmm. So could you talk a little bit about what you see with that in mind? Yeah, I mean, I think if we want to have uh, non-academics, there's there's levels of academics and non-academics, right? Some of the stuff that we write and, and create is really only for fellow faculty and graduate students. Then there's a level where we create for fellow faculty, graduate students, and undergraduate students, they can actually look. And then there's a level where we create for uh, the broader public. I think the we're all very well versed in the first level. The second level where we bring in uh, undergraduate students, I think it's a it's a matter of one clarity, right? This is what we're saying, and you don't need to have read 4,000 books to understand what we're saying, right? And we're going to hold your hand a little bit through some of the assumptions that we're making and some of the people that we're citing, just so that without, you know, spoon feeding them. But, and I, I really like that kind of um, scholarship that, you know, like a, a really smart 18 year old who is committed to getting an A can actually, uh, follow it and maybe they won't understand everything but they'll understand a fair amount of it now when it comes to um public facing scholarship that's a whole other story because I don't know I I do a lot of public facing stuff right but it isn't necessarily related to composition <laughs> because I think it's hard to get the general public to care about the things that we tend to publish about and I think that's okay because there are thousands and thousands and thousands of undergraduate students who could be reading our stuff and being shaped by it and I at least just tend to think of my public facing scholarship as being or, or films or creative writing as just not necessarily being part of rhetoric and composition I think trying to like write for rhetoric and composition plus the undergraduate students plus the grandmother who you know is in the at the supermarket is it's very um it's a lot and then the writing is no good uh which i i hate to do bad writing so um let me just one thing about sound um what i as we're thinking about sort of how to connect i think and this is funny because as you will we'll learn later on in the interview, I've returned to fiction after all these years. I'm back, I'm back to fiction, but there's uh, something really powerful about uh, if we're going to connect to each other as humans, about listening to the way that the person speaks and um, are they, you know, you can get irony, you can get humor, you can get, oh my God, that one hurt. You can get all sorts of things um, in the delivery of somebody's um, ideas through voice that you can't. I mean, obviously I'm Venezuelan, so I speak with my hands a lot. So you're watching my hands do all sorts of things, which your listeners are not um, getting, but hopefully they're still getting a sense of um, what it is that I'm feeling as I'm speaking. And I think for us to do that as part of the grippingness of scholarship. It's the humanization of it, right? That's something you talk about in your earlier work, like Camera Rhetorica. Um, chapter five of Camera Rhetorica is about how researchers make multimodal scholarship count toward tenure and promotion. What has been your experience with this? And what advice would you give pre-tenure scholars, I guess any scholar really, about doing digital multimodal scholarship and making it count for tenure and promotion? This is one of my favorite questions. It's always so much fun. Um, the first is there are plenty of journals that will publish it for you. 
right? They're peer reviewed. You know, I run one of them constellations, but there's enculturation, there's Kairos, there's Pato, you know, like there's C's online. There's all sorts of places that are um, geared towards this sort of scholarship. They're open source, which is great. And um, because those places decided to go the digital route, they really like digital work. Like they get really excited every time they get something that's digital because that's the whole reason they started in a digital format, right? It's because they thought that stuff was cool and powerful and deep. And uh, so that's number one. Just publish it in one of our many uh, journals that publish. And and the, they're, they're different, right? Like Kairos, they want you to code your own page. So if you don't know how to code, I have long and involved explanations about that, which we don't have time for. But I mean, basically with Kairos, I usually just send them my video essay and I go like, if you guys want this, I will code you something. Right. I already made you a video essay. It's awesome. Just uh, if you like it, I will code you something. If you don't like it, then I'll send it somewhere else. Somebody somebody else will think it's awesome. So that's one of the things. Other places like Constellations will just take it and put it within our own space. But that means that then it will look how we look. So there's all sorts of choices to make. But that's number one. Number two is to have that stuff that you've made that's digital live it's digital life somewhere else. So like I make documentaries that have nothing to do with rhetoric and composition. Those documentaries go to film festivals, film festivals or peer reviewed stuff. They win awards at film festivals. Those are all things that universities really like and that you can argue for. And they get, I get grants for them. Universities love grants, you know, so you can do all of these things, uh, you know, about the scholarship itself that makes you into better round, not better rounded, but like a well-rounded scholar who's doing all these things. Three, and I do this one too, is to then write about the process of making these things um, and do peer-reviewed scholarship on that, right? Uh, so lately for my latest film, which is called The Family of Stories, I have been working with the most spectacular crew of incredible humans who have gone to all the big festivals and have won all the awards. And uh, they're Latin American filmmakers. A lot of them live in Europe. Anyway, I have fallen so in love with the experience of collaborating with these mostly women, also men, um, that I've written an endless amount of <laughs> written, just not even uh, digital at all, just scholarship on that experience, right? And that's, so that's writing, it's like not digital, but it is like book chapters and peer reviewed articles about um, what I've learned about collaborating with them. So there's that, so there's all sorts of levels at which um, one can make the scholarship count. What I do wanna really recommend is that your listeners, they actually do more than one thing. Making a film, I've been working on this film, A Family of Stories, for five years, and it's been endless, endless amounts of, of hours and, and drama, happy drama. It hasn't been a difficult situation, but like the drama of like, oh my God, how do we tell this story? Oh my God, oh my God, you know, or how do we get grants? Who's going to fund it? You know, um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot, a lot that goes into it. So I would suggest getting the most that you possibly can out of it. Not just the film, but the film and the press and the peer reviewed articles about making the film, uh, you know, like all, everything you can, because it's not, um, it's no joke doing something of this magnitude. So I, I try to squeeze the most that I can out of it. You are the co-founder and editor-in-chief of the digital publication, Agnes Films, supporting women and feminist filmmakers. And like you mentioned, of the peer-reviewed journal, Constellations, a cultural rhetorics publishing space. Let's first talk about Constellations. What is the philosophy behind the journal? And what is you all's approach to publishing and editing? 
Wonderful. Constellations um, is a journal that seeks to sort of turn polishing a little bit on its head um, by instead of doing the whole, we are going to review you and tell you everything that's wrong with your work and uh, really embarrass you because you didn't cite these five other people that we thought you should have cited. Um, we seek to turn the publishing experience into something really positive and nurturing. Um, so we are very careful about who we invite as reviewers. And if you, if one of our reviewers turns out to have that approach to, to engaging with other people's writing, where you sort of beat, beat them up because of their ideas or what they failed to cite or state, uh, we don't work with those people anymore. Um, so, um, but then we also are very careful in writing and a memo that really gives you a sense of um, the, we're very careful at writing a, mem a memo that really gives you a sense of our priorities. So we we do give you what the uh, reviewer said, but we also were like, okay, listen, the reviewers want the earth and the sky and a thousand other planets, but this is what we actually want, right? Like if, if you want to polish with us, this is what we want. And then we also have mentors who are people who then sit with you. If you want, you don't have to have them, but if you want a mentor, they will um, look out their reviews. They will look at our uh, memo and then they will also just help you make sense of it and, and talk to you, like actual talk to you and say, listen, is this what you want? Is this what you don't want? And then we ask our uh, authors to give us an idea, like to reply to us with a memo, like, look, you guys wanted this and I did these three things. I didn't do thing number four. And this is why, you know, to sort of just turn um, this process, which is what many of us depend on for our jobs and for our promotions and for like races, like merit races, right? Wow. For getting tenure, if you're, ten, you know, uh, into a generative, positive, less mysterious kind of experience. Um, we also have everybody who is on our staff is um, diverse, usually more than one way. So we try, so it's, you know, the diversity is one of the big questions that we're always uh, struggling with in our field. Like, how do we bring more diverse voices? And one of the things that we wanted to do from the start was to, make diversity the norm. So, um, because I think often, I don't think I know that often if you're like the one and only uh, diverse person in the room, it feels very um, uh, alienating or you, you're nervous or whatever. But if it's a void, if everybody's diverse, then it's more the norm. So I think um, we have tri-weekly meetings where we really sit down and dig into like all of our managing editors and our uh, fantastic graduate stuff. We have graduate students who work with us and, and we just sit there and really try to make sense of like, oh, how do we help this person or how do we address this or this other thing? So it's um, it's a very beautiful experiment. Um, it's uh, We're also very patient with, with authors and reviewers and ourselves with everybody. <laughs> so we don't, you know, we publish an, about an issue a year uh, or we do not about we publish we publish an issue a year and often it's because it has taken a long time to get a piece out but it took a long time because of all these things because we understand that people have children and that they have parents that they look after and that they have to go on the job market so we um we try to be as elastic as we possibly can when it comes to the needs of everybody who works in the journal is a perfect no but it's an experiment. And so far, it's been a, a very um, satisfying, beautiful experiment. I want to learn more about Agnes Films supporting women and feminist filmmakers, too. What are the goals of this project? And what parallels do you see in supporting women in the film industry 
and supporting women in the academy. Not like the Academy Award Academy, but like academia. Yes. Like academia, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Um, all right. Um, Agnes Films began as a, it was a project that um, Caitlin Sprunk, uh, who's a dear, dear friend of mine, uh, and I did for a class at Purdue that was taught by Jenny Bay and Pat Sullivan. And uh, it just started as like we it, it was a archives and digital humanities class, and we needed to build some and uh, and Kate and I Kate coded it. I came up with the ideas, and uh, it was supposed to just be this assignment that we would turn in. And then I got and then it that's sort of what it was <laughs> for a while. I was like, I don't have time for this. I'm like, um, I, by then I, I, I was a mom or I was becoming a mom. I don't know. I was trying to do all this other stuff and make movies. But every time I would tell my husband, Nate, that I was like, I need to kill Agnes. Like, I can't. It's like a, a weight on my shoulders. I can't. It's like, he was like, you can't kill Agnes. And every time I thought I was going to kill Agnes, I couldn't kill Agnes. So Agnes, uh, eventually, when I got the job at MSU, I had funding to have a staff of, of students. And so once we had a staff, it uh, blossomed into what it is today, which is basically a publication that provides press, um, reviews, interviews, in-depth articles about a whole spectrum of women and feminist filmmakers. We do talk about the TV shows that we love and about the big Academy Award winning films, that Academy, not Academia. Um, but we also provide indie filmmakers with really thoughtful, positive, though, though also at times critical press uh, and engagement with their work, um, which is very important when you're starting off as a filmmaker the big publications don't want to talk about your work because nobody knows your work, but it's really helpful to you as you're making arguments for the value of what you've done to have um, press about it. So those are so that's our philosophy, and um, we also have a very strong social media presence where we celebrate this and that and. Um, it's been a really beautiful experience. It's been a way to build an amazing community of, of women uh, filmmakers. They keep coming back to us every time they have a new project. Um, and how does it um, connect to academia? I've had, I mean, in a, in a number of ways, like I, I have had a lot of PhD students get publications that way. They'll do interviews, they'll do, so that it's nice when they go on the market, they suddenly have these uh in these interviews but it's a similar if you listen like if you listen to the way that I was explaining constellations where we're like trying to nurturing nurture talent and we're trying to sort of um come at um the work with an open heart and a sense of kindness and possibility Agnes Holmes does the same thing but within the film industry You mentioned this earlier, one aspect of your scholarly life that I find interesting, and I'm sure listeners will find it interesting as well, is that you have one foot in academia and another in the fiction and creative writing world. You have come back, the return to fiction, right, <laughs> uh, that, as you described it. Could you talk a little bit about balance and how this trajectory and how this, uh, I'm sorry, could you talk a little bit about balance and how this impacts your trajectory as a scholar? Yeah, um, so a lot of the things that I do with um, sort of academia are me processing, coming up with processes and, and scholarship that looks, that draws from my experiences as in these other fields. These other fields are really smart about certain things. Like the entertainment industry is brilliant about storytelling, obviously, and branding, right? What is our image? What are the stories that we're gonna tell? What? How does one present oneself? And I feel like in the humanities right now, when we're under attack by everybody and their mother, 
right? Being able to tell stories about who we are and what we do and why it's valuable is huge. So in a way, for me uh, to uh, work within these fields and understand storytelling is really powerful, right? But also, you know, the in this, in the entertainment industry has zero shame about self-promotion and academics are so embarrassed about promoting themselves. It's like, oh God, I am so sorry. I did publish this book. I worked on it for five years, but should I share it? And I'm like, oh my God, please share it. Um, yes, you worked on it for five years. And I think it, it, it's built into the entertainment industry that nobody's going to cast you or buy your show or sort of, you know, have anything to do with your movie. I mean, just to apply to grants, you have to already have an established website and social media presence for your movie that hasn't even been made because you haven't gotten the grants for it. So for me, the entertainment industry has so much to give in terms of um, things that we can draw from as we think about how to make the humanities, you know, the humanities are vibrant, by the way. It's not that we're not vibrant. It's just that a lot of people don't know it. So how do we promote that to future students, to alumni, to administrators? Um, your question was about balance. So I'll very quickly say that different uh, tasks require different things. Um, my novel, uh, I have figured out, requires about, it, it requires like a 10 hour day with me facing the screen. It's delightful, by the way. I know it sounds awful, but I love my characters. They're so marvelous. And they don't like, and the longer I stay at the screen, the more suddenly I can't even type fast enough because they're so there, just giving me everything. Um, what While like academic writing and editing, that gets divided into chunks. So what I need to do what I've had to do is to sort of schedule my days in a way where, you know, like I put a bunch of stuff on the days, a bunch of like smaller tasks on the days that I have meetings and that I teach and I do this. And then for the, and then, but I have to have like two or three days a week where I can just hang out in the land of fiction and let my characters do their thing. So that's, that's the balance. The balance is to, understand what each task requires in terms of time and focus and so on, and then to schedule it. That's such an exciting answer for me. Like you, I am on board listeners. I think you should probably stop the podcast right now and go back four minutes or so and listen to, to Alex's answer there again. Um, that's incredible stuff. You mentioned your novel. And you're, min and you're finishing a film and <laughs> raising a family and moving around the country. Um, let's talk a little bit about the novel first. The novel is called Grand Gestures. And as you described it to me, it takes place in the worlds of musical theater and academia with themes of collaboration and entangled familial and romantic connections you told me that at its core, this novel is a story about our need to protect and nurture our connections, even though doing so across cultural, racial, and gender differences may prove thorny at times. Why was it important to you to write this novel right now? Uh, I... Um, every time I finish a project and I haven't even finished the project, right. I'm working on this, on this movie. I'm like, I'm going to take like a couple of years off or not even a couple of years, like a couple of weeks off. Like, I'm like, I'm going to take some time off. And, but I had zero interest whatsoever in writing a novel at all. I went to, I'm part of a thing called the Women in Hollywood's Girls Club, which is a group of filmmakers, women and uh, non-binary and women identified filmmakers uh, from across all areas in the industry. And I, I couldn't love them more. They're, they're so delightful. And we, we had a workshop and the workshop, I don't know. I went to this workshop and then that night, um, as, 
So I dance every night. I don't like my other, I, I have four things that I do to stay sane. It's the yoga, the meditation. I go on walks uh, every day, hopefully in the woods, not always. And then I dance for a half hour in my kitchen um, at night to sort of just uh, feel emotions and, and work through stuff. And I was dancing and then this idea for a TV show appeared and it appeared really fully fleshed. It was like all the characters were there and the dramas and the this and the that. And I was like, a TV show? This is insane. A TV show? What? I can't do a TV show? Like, that's crazy. Um, but anytime I would say this TV show cannot happen, I'm a professor. Um, I would start to cry. Like, it was like, it was a very um, fully formed thing that wouldn't let go. So I, I thought, well, let me talk to my film industry friends who are many, mostly from the girls club and try to understand, you know, what this is and what we ended up coming up with after many meetings with all these amazing women was that the way to get this piece that would not leave me into the world was to, um, turn it into a novel that would then get adapted to two seasons of a tv show originally it was five seasons of a tv show which was crazy um so if that was how it um came to be the really really surreal thing about this is that this happened this whole thing started on april of uh i don't know a year like 18 months ago or whatever uh no even longer it was a yeah, I think I guess April of last year and uh, no, April of two years ago. I don't know, but whatever. It's this thing. I, it's like time is very weird. What is time anymore? Yeah. <laughs> but the point is like the, the story of this is that it's a woman who, and she is uh, married and she has two children and uh, she gets offered a job at an English department in Pittsburgh and uh, she moves to Pittsburgh and then the whole story it's gets and it's a very it's a fictional university but it's it's a very prestigious fictional university in Pittsburgh and then her the, the whole story unravels from there and um four months later like Pittsburgh was calling and they were like hey do you you know we have this position <laughs> do you want to work on it? and I was like ah yeah I've been writing about this position for uh um, a few months now, you know, so yeah, like the, the novel came first and then five months later I got the call from Pittsburgh and then like a year after that I had the job. So, um, but yeah, the story does deal with um, the, the idea of it is to really think about the ways that um, our creative and intellectual collaborations get all tangled up with our feelings and how do we navigate all of those crazy uh, situations um, without losing our our souls but rather feeding our souls there's a lot it's it's fun it's a it's a romantic comedy basically so it's it's got but it's got there's many love stories and love affairs and um it um it's fun it's about the funnest project i've ever worked on actually that's good to hear that's super cool in tandem with the novel you are also finishing a film uh titled a family of stories and this is a film that is about your father and your complicated complex relationship with your father can you start with, can you start by telling listeners a bit about your father? Oh man, my dad was the coolest dad ever. He, um, had, he was very mystical. Um, I say I did start doing yoga like as in, in my twenties, but I started it because he was always, um, like he he had all of these 
wild and magical things that he liked to do with me when I was little. Like he would have me like hold cards and look at them and he would guess if they were red or black and he could walk on his hands and we would go on nature. And um, we had, he was a very uh, dedicated, uh, he would walk, like he would run barefooted on the streets every day and he would come back and his feet were all like dirty because he had what he was but he had also gone to MIT and he had a genius IQ and he was an inventor and he was not a good writer but he was a writer and he was an economist I mean he was like this um sort of mystical like as mystical a father as you can possibly imagine he spoke a bunch of languages and he was just like the most um Oh my God, for a little girl, you just couldn't possibly um, be more in love with this person. He would come and visit me. My parents were divorced, but he would come and visit me every afternoon. And it was just us for like two hours of the day. And it was whatever I wanted. He never got, he got mad at me once because I disrespected my grandmother. Like I, my grandmother like yelled at me and I like snap back and he was like oh you don't mess with my mother but that was it that was it that's that was the one and only time that my father got mad at me so yeah he was the most magical being that you can ever imagine a little girl um getting to spend time with and so you're making a film or have made a film finishing a film about him yes because then he disappeared when i was six so i had this like most amazing of 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 humans uh that I was completely infatuated with and then he vanished in the Venezuelan Amazon when I was six. I don't and I'm gonna probably leave this in here. I don't know what question to ask next. <laughs> um I mean I'll tell you that what the film is. Uh, no, I mean, the film is a basically a first of all sort of uh, solving of the mystery of what became okay. of my father who disappeared mm -hmm. as an adult. So me, the adult me sort of um, finds out what happened to my dad. Mm -hmm. um, but then also adult me then in the process of doing that finds all this other stuff about my father that six-year-old me couldn't possibly have known. And it's not just him, it's my whole family, it's even me, it's all of us. So like, it's um, it's one of those stories where you have this mystery at its heart, which is what became of him. But the real mystery is, who was this person that this little girl thought was so magical? And how and and how does this little girl who's now 45 years old come to terms with that legacy in uh, a way that hopefully is a healing situation because um, not knowing what became of someone for decades is a very wounding uh, it eats at you. <laughs> it's a brutal sort of thing to to live with, but also then, realizing that this person that you idolized wasn't quite who you thought that you they were is also eats at you so it's it's yeah. a story of um uh redemption forgiveness love when did you start when did you decide that you wanted to make this into a film I wanted to make a novel about it when I was eight like at eight I was like this will be a novel and my mom was like, why don't you just write a short story? You don't even like, like your handwriting sucks, you know, kind <laughs> of like, I was like, no, 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 it's going to be a novel. And I did, I wrote a couple of like, not very good novels about it. Um, but those novels, the, the experience of doing those and researching them has really influenced the film. But then um, what happened was I'm always saying that anytime I'm done with a project, I think I'm going to take a break. Uh, but in 2016, I was done with I guess it was coming out of Torica. I don't know. I was done with some, one of my projects. And I was like, oh my God, I'm going to take like a couple months. Like, like, no, I thought I was going to take a year off from giant projects. So I had what I needed for tenure. And then uh, MSU was like, if you have like a cool project, here's like, I don't remember, like $14,000, but you got to pitch us. 
And I was like, do I have a project? So that's how it, you know, so then like I took no time off. Like it was like, I, of course I wrote the thing, I got the grant and then um, that's how it started. There's a certain level of mystery here to our, that's going on in our conversation that I want to respect. Um, but what can viewers expect from the film when they experience it? It's a very, so I didn't, I, I struggle with, probably because I went through it, I struggle as an audience member with uh, very dark brooding material. It really affects me. It gets in my dreams and then I can't, it's just, and it, it lingers. So even though it deals with a really, not really, but fairly dark topic. I mean, it's a dude that disappeared, a fabulous man that disappeared. Um, it's a really hopeful, sort of beautiful, playful film. And I'm not talking just from, I mean, we've, we've had dozens and dozens and dozens of people have seen it as we craft it. So this is not just me telling you, this is from like a lot of feedback that we've gotten. So it's a surprisingly loving, um, playful, forgiving film that deals with a really difficult topic. And they can expect to have the answers that uh, I've laid out as me seeking. So maybe this should have been the first question of the interview, but I like that it's intentionally near the end. Why do you write and produce so much about your family? Because they are you can't not do it. I come from this, like, I swear I'm the least interesting person in my whole family. Like, no, like my grandmother, my dad's uh, mother, she had six husbands. They were all from different countries and she wouldn't never tell us how many there were. And like, and they, they were, she lived all over the world and she was so beautiful, but also like so cold and complicated. And she's just one of them. Like all of my relatives have had a thousand million love affairs and that's not true. Oh my God, relatives, I'm sorry. You haven't all had a million love affairs, but they've had very passionate, interesting, delightful, crazy lives um, that just scream, tell, tell my story. You know, like you can't not. And they're uh, very charismatic and fascinating. And like, I've watched them, like my aunt Rima, who's my dad's sister, you just, she's in every, I have never done anything like creative that, that she's not somehow in it. I can't, and I'm already planning my next novel and I'm like, oh my God, she is so in that one. She's in this one too. Like some version of her, right? Not her, but some version of her. Like she, the, I come from a family of, of people who are just infinitely fascinating and, and interesting. And I, um, I don't know. I got married at 23. I met my husband at 21. Um, I've had a, a, a very happy, lovely life, but it's been a pretty stable sort of like, you know, you can't have a lot of love affairs when you marry at 21. I mean, I guess you could, but I've, I'm in a monogamous marriage. So, you know what I mean? Like, so I, I, when I tell my story, it's always, predicated on them or on my children who like motherhood has been the most transformative motherhood and marriage right has, have been the most transformative things in my life just because I just think they're all way more interesting than me but I'm a good conduit to bringing them to life you are a family of stories uh <laughs> as the title suggests a right. family of stories and grand gestures um when do you hope to finish those up I think so in film, you have something called picture lock, which is the moment in which you're no longer going to change the, the sound or the footage of the film. This is the thing, whatever many seconds it lasts or minutes really like it. Um, and, you know, everything is where it is. Um, and then it goes to color and sound correction and blah, 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 blah. We are... Our, our, our hope, and it's a good hope, <laughs> is that we're going to have picture lock for the English and Spanish version of the films, because it's in both languages, by the end of the year, 
with our fabulous composer, music, blah, blah, blah. And then next year we start sort of connecting, hopefully, with um, co-productions in Europe to sort of complete the, the other tasks. So we'll see. But that one is very much um, in good shape. The novel, I have this dream, and it's a dream that I'm going to have the first draft finished by the end of the year as well. It's hard because, um, as I was explaining, I need long sort of swaths of time to work on the novel. And uh, my characters are, they couldn't be lovelier, and they're very, it takes them a while to warm up. They, they, like a few hours and then once they warm up and then I, once I'm done I end up having to write things like they they they're I have to have notebooks with me for like a few hours afterwards because all these things are like in the middle of night it appears like all these lines of dialogue or scenes but um they work best that that process works best if I can have many days where in a row I can work on it and obviously during the semester that's not the most um so, but I, I'm hoping to reserve two weeks in December. And I think if I can actually do, <laughs> I just hit 10, uh, 100,000 words, which is uh, worrisome just because the story is not over and we're already 100,000 words. But um, I think, yeah, I mean, hopefully I, I'll have a first draft by um, the end of the year as well. And then we'll see. I mean, then I have to send it to more readers and, you know, long story, but that's where we're at. Where can find uh, where can people find out more information about your work online? This might be websites, social media handles, stuff like that. I mean, if you Google Alexandra Hidalgo, my my website shows up. It's alexandrahidalgo.com. I'm also on Twitter. That handle is the underscore Alex Hidalgo. And it's not because I think I'm the Alex Hidalgo, but because everything else was taken. <laughs> So it was like, no, I was like, oh my God, all the iterations of my name are not. So anyway, I'm the Alex Hidalgo. I'm on Instagram, the underscore Alex underscore Hidalgo, because the other version was taken. So now I have two different, it's very annoying. Um, I'm also on Facebook. They can just Google me. Um, but I did, like, if you, if you Google me, I show up. So just, um, they can Google my name. And uh, I, I have a newsletter, but I haven't written on it in forever because I've been like, I have a newsletter that people can sign up with, can sign up for on the website, but I've been so consumed by um, writing an actual novel that the poor newsletter has fallen off the wayside for now. Thanks so much, Alex, thank for you. taking some time to chat. Um, this was great. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you. This was so, so fun. I really appreciate it. interview with Dr. Alexandra Hidalgo as a part of the TBR podcast Keystone Perspectives series. Dr. Hidalgo's work in cultural rhetorics is essential and her work as a filmmaker, as someone who produces multimodal scholarship, has influenced the development of this podcast. The information Dr. Hidalgo shared about digital texts as scholarship and how these digital genres can count toward tenure and promotion is critical for many scholars in rhetoric and composition. I am also really, really excited to see her new film about her father. It sounds so exciting. Season 7 of TBR Podcast began with our keynote interview with Dr. Madison Jones as a part of the Big Rhetorical Podcast Carnival, our third annual carnival. Throughout the 15 episodes of this season, we have featured scholars from Seton Hall University, Boston University, York University, Toronto, and James Madison University, among others. We named our second 
TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award winner, Elena Kalodner-Martin from UMass Amherst. We talk to authors in adjacent fields like history and law to amplify the inherent interdisciplinarity of the field. We have conducted some interviews that work to counteract inequity and violence in society, including interviews with James Rushing Daniel and Lydia Wilkes and the rhetorics of guns folks, rhetoric and guns. We have just named our second TBR podcast fellow, Hamza Amal. And now, season seven is done. I will be back with season eight of the Big Rhetorical Podcast in early 2023. If you are interested in being featured on TBR Podcast, please reach out to us on our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com or email us, thebigrhetorical at gmail.com have you got a new project or book to promote are you a graduate student on the job market we want to talk to you i'll be back next year with another season of the big rhetorical podcast until then always be listening rhetorically the big rhetorical podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not-for-profit. The Big Rhetorical Podcast was recorded on the land of multiple native nations, past and present. These original homelands are the territory of indigenous peoples who were largely dispossessed and removed. We specifically acknowledge the traditional stewardship of this land by the Wichita, Kikapu, and Tawakoni peoples. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Airtones. Mm-hmm.